Good morning. It's, it's a joy for our family to be back with you. Well, half of our family at this service and half of our family at the next service as we shuttle cars. Um, we're just so grateful for the way that Fellowship Raleigh has, yeah, has embraced us and provided a, a home fellowship for us when we're in this area. Um, we've really grown to love the church. Uh, Matt shared with me that you all have been working through the book of Acts and especially focused on outreach. Um, so I'm sure you've been talking about ideas like that at its core, the church is an outward-looking, outward-reaching entity. Um, the church itself is the fruit of outreach. The church is the vehicle of outreach. And the book of Acts tells the beginning of that story in the life of the church. But the book of Acts is not the beginning of the story. It's, it's rather a narrative of the beginning of the fulfillment of a much, much older story, a story that's rooted in the plot and the promises of the Old Testament. And that means in order to understand the church, in order to understand the nature of outreach, you have to understand the promises and the patterns that were established in the Old Testament that then are fulfilled in our midst. And that fulfillment that begins in the book of Acts continues in the church today. It's shaped by the same realities. It's the fulfillment of the same promises. And so today, we're going to start a little two-week series looking at some of that background that undergirds everything you guys have been talking about over these past weeks. Um, see, if, if you want to understand what it means to do outreach, you have to understand these foundations. So this week, we're looking at Isaiah 60. If you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We're going to consider the goal of outreach. And then next week, we'll look at the following chapter, Isaiah 61, and consider the nature of outreach. Now, before we turn to Isaiah, um, we need to pause briefly and consider a couple of essential elements of the biblical storyline that are particularly relevant for what we're going to be talking about. Right? So God creates the world, and then we turn away from him. Not just some people, but all people. And then you keep reading. If we skip forward quite a few chapters in Genesis, you get the Tower of Babel, and judgment falls, and the people are dispersed to many languages and many nations, which means now you have one world full of many nations that are hostile to God and, frankly, tend to be hostile to each other. And then God raises up Abraham, right? Makes some promises to turn him into a great nation. Now, pause and consider. If the nations of the world are hostile to God and tend to be hostile to each other, then how are the nations of the world going to treat, feel about a nation that comes to be God's people? Well, not well. Now, God promises to bless Abraham, to bless all the nations of the earth through him, God eventually gives that nation a king and promises that one day a descendant of that king will rule all the nations of the earth. God's people are described as a great mountain. And if you look in the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 2, you read that all the nations shall flow to it. As they come near to the house of Jacob, they will say, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that's not mainly what God's people experience, right? Israel does not bring divine blessing to the nations. Other nations do not come to join Israel in submission to Yahweh, walking in the light of his word. 
they're hostile. They tend to attack God's people, reject God, seek to plunder and subjugate his people. And God promises one day that will change. He says it's the Messiah who will fix it. And Isaiah 60 helps us to understand how that will work. Our our passage teaches us about five core things about what God has promised his people in relation to all the nations of the earth. We'll see that God's people will be a beacon to the nations, receive blessing and wealth from the nations, be served by the nations, experience peace and prosperity with the nations, and then finally live in God's direct presence as the nations. Those are our five sections. And in all of this, God promises that one day he will bring, that all the nations will bring all they have to join God's people to experience the fullness of divine blessing. So, first, we need to understand these Old Testament promises by looking at Isaiah 60. We'll start there. Then we will consider how that is fulfilled with the coming of Christ. And then finally, we'll consider for a bit what that means for us. So let's get started. We'll read the passage, and then we'll work through Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful." Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste." The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age." You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace, and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders." 
you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hand, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Amen. So, let's go. First, verses 1 to 3. God's people will be a beacon to the nations. We read, The Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And there's really a two-sided aspect to this promise, which is to say there's two different core aspects to being a beacon. First, a beacon is bright. It shines. God intends for his glory to be seen in his people. He says, darkness shall cover the earth, but in the midst of that darkness, his glory will shine forth in the midst of his people. And then second, a beacon draws people toward it for safety and salvation, meaning the nations will come to his people so that they can partake of the light. And that, in a nutshell, was the job given to Israel, to shine forth and to draw. That is what they were supposed to be. And at a few moments in their history, it looked like that's what they would be. And if you read through the Old Testament thinking of these realities, perhaps nowhere do your hopes start to rise higher than during the reign of Solomon. That's a subject we'll touch on again in the coming sections. 1 Kings 10 tells us about it. The queen of Sheba hears of Solomon's great wisdom. She's drawn to the light. He answers all of her questions. She rejoices in the glory of God poured out in blessing and in wisdom. But that episode proves to be a tease. It doesn't continue. Through much of their history, Israel's sin and folly lead to this repeated refrain in the Old Testament. The name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Meaning Israel does not tend to shine forth God's glory, but rather obscures the light of God's character because their own behavior is so far removed from the goodness of God. And so God promises here that the day will come when God's people will be a light in the darkness, showing forth his glory and drawing all the nations of the world to him. God's people will be a beacon to the nations. And when that happens, God's glory will be seen in his people and all the nations will be drawn near. That's our first section. And that brings us to the second, verses 4 to 7. And here, we see how God's people will receive blessing and wealth from the nations. Meaning, not only will the nations be drawn to God's people in order to experience his light and glory, but the nations will come bearing gifts and offering all they have to the community of faith. These, these verses are kind of like a picture of the joy and excitement of a child opening a Christmas tree full of presents on Christmas morning except that under the tree are all the blessings and wealth of the entire world and all the nations within it. He says, you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, and look at all they're going to receive. Verse 5, the wealth of nations shall come to you, 
Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you. Those are the bearers of exotic and foreign goods, meaning they're receiving not just quantity, but the highest of quality. But as you read that, don't get fooled by that imagery into a mainly materialistic understanding. Isaiah insists this is all bound up with the praise of God and the good news of what he has done. Verse 7, you read of the flocks of Kedar, the rams of Nebaioth, meaning the proceeds of the best pasture lands, the fatness of the fattest lands. It will all come to you, he says, yet not for mere consumption, but rather as a sacrifice of worship. He calls it acceptance on my altar, meaning all of these blessings he's promising his people are not in the first place for his people, they are for God himself. Isaiah says they are for his worship, to beautify his house. But because God's people are brought inside the circle of his glory, everything that is done for God's praise redounds to their pleasure. And again, the Old Testament gives us little glimpses of this happening. Again, perhaps Solomon's the greatest example. And here, the mention of Sheba in verse 6 would seem to explicitly allude to that time. But again, those brief moments are far from the normal experience of God's people. Mostly, the nations come to attack and plunder. They come to take, not to give. They do not bring wealth into God's house. They rather steal the gold and the precious things from God's house and carry them off. And so God promises that the day will come when nations will no longer seek to take from God's people but will instead bring all the wealth and blessings they possess as gifts to God's people. So, he says God's people will be a beacon to the nations. They will receive blessing and wealth from the nations. And that brings us to our third section, verses 8 to 14. And here we learn that God's people will be served by the nations. Right? Repeatedly throughout their history, Israel had been subjugated by the surrounding nations. Right? There are slaves in Egypt, then many are taken into exile in Assyria, then by Babylon, puppet kings are installed. After Babylon, Persia rules the promised land. As you approach the time of Christ, then it's Greece, then it's Rome. He says that too will be reversed. There are many parallels between this section and the previous one. But here, the focus is not on the nations bringing wealth to God's people, but rather on the nations serving God's people. And there are some verses here that feel uncomfortable. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls, their kings shall minister to you. Verse 12, the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. Meaning the nations will no longer be a threat to attack or conquer God's people. They will rather humbly submit to them, we're told. And so secure will the position of God's people be that verse 11 says they won't even need to close the city gates at night. You can just leave your front door wide open. No lock at all. There won't even be the whisper of a threat. And some of you are probably a little uncomfortable right now. Because many are not going to read verse 14, all who despised you shall bow down at your feet and say, Amen. Is Isaiah saying that the oppressed Israel is going to become the oppressor? 
He's not. Be patient. Stay with me. I, I believe if you're concerned by those things, those concerns will all be answered by the end of the chapter. We will get there. But I'm not going to jump ahead to those answers because there is something that we need to hear in these verses. You see, in the Old Testament, the battles between the nations were also battles between their gods. And so when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, they believed it was because the gods of the Babylonians had defeated the God of Israel. And the Bible insists, no, that's not true. Israel didn't go into exile because their God proved to be weaker than the gods of the other nations. Israel went into exile because their God rules over all the nations, and he had determined to raise up some nations for a time to bring judgment down upon his people for their sin, just as he promised he would. Meaning the one true God remains in control throughout. Nobody kicks him off his throne. About that, the other nations were entirely wrong. However, about something else, the nations were quite right. Yahweh is connected to his people. He has bound himself to his people. And that means that the vindication of God involves and requires the vindication of his people. And if you want to understand that better, then I'll just encourage you to set aside some time and dwell on Ezekiel 36. We can't do that now. And again, you see glimpses of that being fulfilled in the Old Testament. Some surrounding nations are subdued and bring tribute to King David, right? Nebuchadnezzar falls down on his face before Daniel after he interprets his dreams. But again, these are just little glimpses, little pictures of what a real fulfillment will look like. And the much more common experience of God's people is, again, the exact opposite. They don't rule, they're ruled over. Foreign nations do not submit to the God of Israel. They mock him as they seek to subjugate his people. And so they may have the truth, and though their God may have all power, the fact remains that very often throughout history, God's people are on the losing end of the power battles of the world. Here we're told the day will come when they'll be victorious. Those who once enslaved them will serve them instead. And that brings us to our fourth section. Now, up to this point, most of the themes in the passage have been about the vindication of God's people. And that's because there is an exclusivity to the truth. Right? If, if you and I have an argument about something, then for the truth to be shown forth, one of us, at least, will likely need to be shown to be incorrect. Though in my teen years, I was an atheist. I had friends in high school who believed that God was real. They were right. I was wrong. And a part of the truth being displayed was me recognizing, I'm wrong, you're right. A part of me personally coming to lay hold of the truth was me affirming they were right. In that sense, the truth is exclusive. And so as God's truth is vindicated in the world, so too God's people are vindicated in their faith. But as we turn to our final two sections, we see how the truth is not only exclusive, but in a different way, incredibly inclusive. See, the goal of the truth being shown forth is here, not for Israel to be held up above all the other nations, but it is rather for the truth to come to all nations, 
and for all to come to know the God of truth and grace. And so just as God promises that the truth and his people will be vindicated, so too he promises that all these other nations will come to experience the very same blessing. They join in. Verses 15 to 18 speak of a reversal of fortunes. After a season of pain and difficulty, there's overwhelming blessing. The, the pattern that the cross leads to resurrection, that is not a New Testament invention. That reality is bound up with the character of God. So we read that bronze will be turned into gold, meaning all that was mundane will become glorious. All that was broken will be restored. Verses 17 and 18, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Meaning all the results of sin will be washed away and perfect peace and righteousness and praise will be all that remains. But do you notice when you look at those verses, 17 and 18, He's not talking about the destruction of sin in general. He is talking about the destruction of sin as it relates to foreign nations oppressing God's people. He speaks of their overseers, of their taskmasters. He speaks of violence and destruction within the land. But look at the outcome God promises. He does not say, your taskmasters will become your slaves. He does not say, your armies will destroy others as they have destroyed you. That's not the vision at all. He says there will be peace. Far from other nations being a threat, he says they will come to be a source of nourishment and intimacy as a nursing mother with her child. And he says all will be ruled by peace and righteousness. God says his people will experience peace and prosperity with the nations that they will live together in harmony. They will be, he says, protected by the walls of salvation, which can only mean that those walls have come to enclose, to include those who were once hostile. And that brings us to our last section. Here we're told that one day, God's people will live in God's direct presence as all the nations. And here, when you read these verses, we have clearly left the realm of historical fulfillment. We have entered into a description of eternity with God. We read, the sun shall be no more, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever. God promises that his people will live in his direct presence in the light of his glory for all eternity. They will be fully righteous. And because of that, able to take permanent possession of God's promises. Because remember, it's sin that keeps on getting his people in trouble and getting them cut off from his promises. And so the only way that they can live permanently with God in his presence is if they are made permanently righteous. And then you read verse 21, and Isaiah seems to say that the whole people will be the branch. And with the exception of Daniel 11, that word appears only in Isaiah, and it refers to the Messiah. And so verse 21 seems to say that the entire people of God will become as the Messiah is. And as we continue to consider what that means about the relationship of God's people with the nations, look at verse 22. 
the least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. But Israel is a nation. But here we're told that even the smallest part of God's people will be a mighty nation. Meaning God's people will cease to be a single nation. They will come to contain many nations. His people will live in his presence as all the nations. The nations recognize the God of Israel, come to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they are included in his people. And as that happens, his people become the nations. Now, it is not until Christ establishes the church that anyone could have possibly imagined how that could happen. But God insists it will. Okay, let's pause and review. What have we seen? God's people will be a beacon to the nations, receive blessing and wealth from the nations, be served by the nations, experience peace and prosperity with the nations, and live in God's direct presence as the nations. In all of that, God promises that one day, all the nations will bring all they have to join God's people and experience the fullness of divine blessing. This kind of promise is repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And as we turn to the New Testament, you see that this promise shapes the story from start to the finish. So just to let me show you, let me pull something from the very, very beginning of the New Testament and from the very, very end of the New Testament. So first consider first couple chapters of the New Testament, first chapters of Matthew. Have, have you ever paused to consider the significance of the Magi who come bringing gifts to Christ at his birth? It's a classic part of the Christmas story, right? They make really nice pieces in a nativity set. Um, they star in some great Christmas carols, right? Um, but why are they there? Well, to answer that question, you first have to answer the question, who were the wise men from the East? And historically, the answer to that is we have no idea, meaning we don't know historically where they came from, what city in particular they came from. But in regard to their biblical significance, we know exactly who they are and where they came from. Their symbolic power could hardly be more evocative. What was the Eastern civilization famed for their wise men? Babylon. The, the Babylon whose wise men had plotted against Daniel to get him thrown into the lion's den. The, the Babylon who took the Israelites into exile, an exile that Isaiah promises will end in verse 4 of our passage. The Babylon who tore down the walls of Jerusalem that Isaiah promised will be rebuilt in verse 10. The Babylon who took all the wealth of the treasury and the temple, which Isaiah promises will be restored in verse 11. This is a picture, a little picture of the reversal that Isaiah had promised. And Matthew's not simply drawing on these themes and images. He explicitly connects the Magi to Isaiah 60. The wise men come. Why? They see a star rise, just as Isaiah had said. The Lord will arise upon you, and the nations will come to your light. They fall down before the Christ child. As Isaiah had said, those, the sons of those who afflicted you shall bow down at your feet. 
they offer him gold and frankincense, just as we read in Isaiah 60 that they shall bring gold and frankincense. See, the Magi function in the Gospels in exactly the same way that Lazarus does, just in regard to a different promise. In John 11, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So the resurrection of Lazarus shows us a picture of the reality that Jesus is the one who conquers death and brings eternal life. That Jesus has the power over death, and those who trust in him will be freed from death forever. The Magi do the same thing with this promise about the nations. And the Old Testament is full of the promise we've just seen, that one day all the nations will bring all they have to join God's people and experience the fullness of divine blessing. That all the nations will come to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as they do so, violence and hostility will end. Peace and salvation will rule. The, the wealth of the whole world will be poured out upon all the nations of the earth as they are incorporated into the people brought into existence through the branch, the Messiah, the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. And so the Magi come to tell us that in the person of Jesus, all this will be fulfilled. As Christ says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then if you turn from the very first pages of your New Testament to the very end of your New Testament, you might find an even stronger emphasis on Isaiah 60. So look, for example, at Revelation 21, 23 to 25. I'll, I'll read it for you. This is the Bible's climactic picture of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the hope and goal of the church. And there you read this. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, just as we read in verses 19 and 20 of Isaiah 60. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will nations walk, as we read back in verse 3, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, as we read in verse 11, and its gates will never be shut by day, as we also read there, and there will be no night there we're told that the culmination of the gospel, that the final result of Jesus' death and resurrection is the fulfillment of Isaiah 60. The ministry of the church, the outreach of the church, is driven by this vision. So, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for those who follow Christ to press into the fulfillment of these promises? Or you could say, how do we personally, whether individually or as a corporate body, do outreach in ways that are consistent with these realities? And there are all kinds of implications. For today, we are briefly going to consider two. First, consider one of the critical aspects of the nations. Within the thought world of the Bible, who are the nations? Who who was Babylon from whom the wise men came? who are Egypt and Assyria that earlier in Isaiah were told will join Israel in brotherhood, who are the Samaritans and the Gentiles to whom the gospel goes forth in the book of Acts. They're enemies. They're not just different. They're not just other. They're not even just outsiders. They're oppressors, hostile powers. 
They have stood against both God and his people. And this promise, this promise that drives forward the entire outreach of the church, the vision of the fulfillment of the work of Christ, the promise whose fulfillment is the very new heavens and the new earth, is particularly directed toward those groups of people who are most hostile and most opposed to biblical faith. They are the focus of God's promise here. And so they are to be the particular focus of the outreach of God's people. The goal of God's people is not the defeat of their enemies, and it is certainly not to destroy their enemies. The goal is to be a light to their enemies and to win them, such that they are joined together into one body. And so it's worth pausing to consider if there are some people or some groups of people whom you tend to exclude from your outreach. Christ came to save his enemies. Those who know Christ work for exactly the same thing. And then second, how do we understand the fulfillment of these promises? Because these are amazing promises, right? Like this is kind of lofty, glorious stuff. How do you understand the fulfillment of those promises when we live in a broken world? We do not live in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. God promises that one day all the nations will bring all they have to join his people and experience the fullness of divine blessing. It's not okay to just say that stuff, to proclaim great promises like this in ways that are utterly divorced from reality and our experience in this world. How were these things fulfilled? How are they relevant now in our midst today? Well, conveniently enough, I think more or less in exactly the same way that Jesus brings the kingdom in general that he fulfills almost all of his promises. So consider a couple with me. From a biblical perspective, if you trust in Jesus, are you already saved? Well, yes and no. Yes, Romans 8.24, in this hope we were saved. We're already saved. We've been delivered, rescued, justified. We have peace with God. Our sins have been paid for. It's done. And no. Romans 5, 9 to 10, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, that's future, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved, again, future, by his life. We have not yet passed through judgment day. That awaits us. We will stand before the judgment seat of God. And either Christ will claim us as his own on that day, or we will be doomed. Now, of course, we have nothing to fear because Christ has saved us. And he will bring us through. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we still await that final act of salvation that completes our experience of it. Or let me pick another one. From a biblical perspective, if you trust in Jesus, will you die? Well, Yes and no. On the one hand, yes, I'm afraid you'll still die. 
Jesus promises Peter directly that he will die. And in fact, not just will he die, he'll be crucified, John 21. And no, Jesus says, everyone who believes in me shall never die, John 11. So if you're a Christian, according to the Bible, you will die and you will not die. As Jesus said in the verse right before that, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because if you trust in Christ, you already have eternal life. But you have not yet entered into the full experience of that life. It's real. It's yours. It's accomplished. Jesus doesn't have to do any more work to finish off the job and bring it about. So real is the life you have in Christ that not even death can touch it. Meaning, in a sense, death is not death anymore. But unless Jesus comes back first, you will still have to pass through death. And one day, that won't be true anymore. So now consider what we've seen in our passage, that God's people will be a beacon to the nations, will receive blessing and wealth from the nations, that they'll be served by the nations, that they'll experience peace and prosperity with the nations, that they will live in God's direct presence as the nations. God promises that one day all the nations will bring all they have to join God's people and experience the fullness of divine blessing. All the nations of the earth will become God's people, or you could say God's people will come to be all the nations of the earth. In our passage, God says, I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. How? Well, he says it will be by the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. See, like every other aspect of his work of salvation, this is not something Jesus will do. This is something Jesus has already done in essence, something he is bringing about through his church, and something that he will bring to consummation on the last day. And so if you are in Christ, you join him in this work, in precisely the same way you join him in all his works. You lay hold of it by faith. You experience it personally in your life. You pray it into reality. You labor to see it realized more and more. And you wait expectantly for the day when Jesus will bring it to full completion. And so we labor to see all the nations of the earth especially those nations who have been enemies to God and his people, to come to see the glory of God in the midst of his people. Verse 2 pictures our day just as well as it pictures Isaiah's. Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Darkness covers the world. One of the ways that is most clearly seen is in the hostility of nation to nation and of nations to God's people. But Christ has come, and his glory has dawned, it has risen, and people from all nations are drawn to that light. And as we see Jesus' kingdom grow now, we are seeing the fruit of his labor made manifest on the earth. We're able to press forward with confidence because we know that the fulfillment's not bound up with our efforts, but with the sufficiency and glory of the work of Christ. 
So verses 15 to 20, did you see they're full of eternal language? Forever, no more, everlasting, forever again. Don Carson comments about our passage in this way. He writes, Here Zion returns, not the Jerusalem that the returning exiles gradually rebuilt, but the ultimate Zion, the kingdom of God coming to earth. If much of the symbolism still springs from the historical city, that's no surprise. Yet the vision transcends any merely earthly hope. As evidence, we note there's no longer any sun or moon, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Here the sovereign Lord himself arises, infinitely more glorious than any earthly sunrise. Righteousness and sin ebb and flow in the lives of God's people throughout history. Times of blessing, times of deep struggle come and go. But that ebbing and flowing will not continue because Jesus has risen and his kingdom has come, though now it grows in secret. The nations are coming. The the Magi show us that Jesus is the one able to draw them to God's light because he is the one who shows forth God's glory. He is the branch. He is our salvation. And not ours only, but the salvation of the whole world. And one day the entire world, with all the nations, will shine as Zion with the glory of God. That is the goal of your outreach as a church. May it be so. Let's pray.